All right, well, good morning, and yes, I'm sick, as you can tell by I can't figure out how to work a microphone. <laughs> and as well, in my sickness, I forgot to put my slides on a flash drive this morning, so there's no slides either. So that's great. That means you're going to all have to open up your Bibles, <laughs> heaven forbid, or your phone devices with your Bible apps, and go to Isaiah 6 with me if you have the phone app, then luckily you can change it to the same translation, which is the New Living Translation that we tend to use here. And I apologize if I start hacking up along in a microphone and make it really loud and deafen you, but we're hope that that won't happen. So we're continuing our series here in the book of Isaiah, which apparently is a very popular book these days. As uh, Brad, Ruth, Ellen, and I had the opportunity to attend the Multiply Conference uh, Wednesday and Thursday down in Vancouver, featuring many great speakers, including Francis Chan and Larry Osborne. So those two days, I heard about 13 sermons. And within those sermons and worship sets, Isaiah was probably referenced eight or nine times. And in fact, uh, Pat Sesbell preached Isaiah 6, 1 to 8, and then Francis Chan ended up preaching Isaiah 6, 8 to 13, which if you look in your Bibles, is the entire chapter 6 of Isaiah, which I am preaching today, and so therefore I thank them for my sermon this morning. (laughs) So let's look at our chapter today. Isaiah 6 is a vision given to Isaiah, in which he is commissioned as the Lord's messenger. And as Brad said two weeks ago, if you remember, that a prophet was not a predictor of a future, of the future, at least not primarily. When they did do their few predictions of a future, it was so general that when they were predicting Jesus' first coming and the end of age, it all looked like it was one event. And so it was very general, but that's not primarily what they did. They were more foretellers rather than foretellers. They're not saying what is to come, but they're interpreting what is happening during their time and giving reason for it, saying what God is doing within it. Many of the prophets, actually all the prophets, are talking about an exile that's coming before it's coming, but this wasn't news to anyone in Israel. When you have a nation growing in strength, seeming unstoppable, conquering its way towards you, you kind of know that this force is going to come and destroy you. So Israel was aware of this, but the prophets come in and they say, yes, this is happening, it's coming. But let me tell you why this is happening, where God is in all of this. So we look at our first text, or first part of our text, verses 1 to 4 here. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they cover their faces, with two they cover their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory." Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. 
Isaiah fully encounters the glory and holiness of God. And the very first verse starts with a message to Judah. King Uzziah has died, and he was one of the very few good kings that Judah had. He was following God, and he was leading the people to follow God. King Ahaz is soon going to take the throne, and he ends up being one of the worst kings Judah ever had. But Isaiah sees God on a lofty throne. Isaiah tells him that God is sovereign and God rules. Judah, you've had many bad kings, and now one of your few good kings has died, and another bad king is going to take the throne. But God rules overall. There's no idea that this reign was only happening at the end of age when God came, but that God rules now in the midst of bad kings, in the midst of good kings. God is on his lofty throne, reigning over the world. And friends, right now we are living in a post-Christian nation where individualism is celebrated over community, where tolerance is proclaimed instead of the gospel, and Donald Trump is very close to being Republican (laughs) presidential candidate. And despite all of this, God is sovereign. God is sitting on his lofty throne and is the true ruler of our world. And Isaiah comes into the presence of the holy and glorious God. And what does he see? A high and lofty throne, the bottom of God's robe, and angels flying around. What is missing here? There's no description of the physical features of God at all, just the things that are around him. The holiness of God is so great that likely Isaiah is lying flat on his face. God's holiness is so great that Isaiah cannot look directly at God, but can only look at the things around him, the throne he sits on, the train of his robe, and the angels flying around. The temple is filled with smoke, likely to shield Isaiah from these glorious features of God. The same thing happens to Moses when he asks to see God's glory. God puts him in the crevice of a rock, tells him to close his eyes, and walks by him until he's past him, almost out of view, and then tells Moses to open his eyes just to catch the edge of God's glory. And this sight alone causes Moses' causes Moses's face to glow for weeks, which makes me believe that a full sight of God's glory by such imperfect creatures as us will cause us to explode in light beams of glory. Just, and God's holiness causes three movements that we see throughout this vision of Isaiah. And the first is shown in this passage. God's holiness moves us to worship. These angels aren't your renaissance naked babies with wings angels, which you would see if I remembered my slides. (laughs) These are warriors, creatures who have never sinned, never rebelled against God. Creatures who cause humans when they see them, to fall on their face and try to worship them because of their glory and their holiness. And even these creatures 
are moved to glorify and worship God because of his holiness and his glory. They too are caused to cover their face so that they cannot see the holiness of God, for it is too great for them as well. And the glory of God moves the angels to worship as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And they're proclaiming not only that God is holy, but that creation itself is proclaiming his glory. Creation itself is moved to worship God because of his holiness. And Psalm 19 shows this beautifully. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete, eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other. Nothing can hide from its heat. Creation is moved to glorify God by God's glory and holiness. Isaiah himself is moved to worship God because of his holiness, likely lying flat on his face, bowing before God's throne. And this is a reality for all of humanity. In Romans, Paul says that when Jesus comes back in all his glory and all his holiness, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't matter whether you are worshiping or believe him right now, 